I'm April Klumkevich. And I'm Amanda McClooney, and this is Her Step Forward, where we share stories from women who step up, step out, and step forward into careers and lives they love. Our guest today is Dr. Gabrielle Grant. She's a conflict transformation practitioner, executive director of a nonprofit, researcher, and a university professor. She has a PhD in conflict analysis and resolution from Nova Southeastern University, NSU, and has spent her career working in a variety of different fields to change systems and advocate for children and families. Dr. Grant, or Gabby, as we know her, is committed to changing society through restorative justice and conflict transformation by teaching, training, facilitating, and mediating nonviolence techniques from Southeast Asia to Southern Appalachia. She believes in showing up, being vulnerable, and moving past fear to hold space for others to do the same. Funny coincidence, my family used to go for summers in the same small mountain town where Gabby is from. And we realized this when we met years ago working at NSU. Welcome, Gabby. Hi. Thanks for having me. We're excited. (laughs) Yeah, we're glad you're here. So it would be rare for a little kid to say, I want to work in mediation and restorative justice. (laughs) So (laughs) what is restorative justice exactly? And how did you decide that this is the field for you? Well, I definitely didn't know existed when I was a little kid, so I was not growing up with that idea either. Um, I kind of got into it by accident, really. Um, I had always been interested in culture and conflict and also like helping people in some way. And um, when I was in college, I did my bachelor's in religion, but I was mostly interested in like anthropology and the way systems play out and um, kind of decided I was going to go to law school because I didn't know what else to do um, at that point. And then a friend of mine found out about this program that was a master's in conflict analysis and dispute resolution from UNC Greensboro. And I had no idea what that was, but I read it about it online. And I was like, this is more of the fit for me. And I didn't have any clue what I was going to do with it, but I knew it was really what I wanted to go learn more about. And mostly so Mediation and restorative justice really come from what we call the conflict transformation perspective. There's a lot of different reiterations of it, but it's really rooted in this idea that conflict is an opportunity to grow. It doesn't have to have this negative connotation that I think sometimes our society places on it. It's an opportunity to grow, and it's all rooted in kind of these really old ideas when we were tribal societies and we had to depend on each other and value each other a lot more than I think we do today. Focusing on repairing the harm of society and repairing the harm that an individual has done versus just punishing them for a wrongdoing. And that's kind of like the core value and restorative justice. And mediation, I think, has had a lot of different reiterations. But The mediation that I'm mostly interested in and what I teach and um, practice myself is mediation to kind of use a process to restore the harm that's been done between conflicting parties. So that's kind of that in a nutshell. And what really drew me to this work was the ability 
to grow and learn and have these difficult conversations, but in a way using processes and tools and techniques in a way to help people get to a new understanding with each other. You know, I've worked in a lot of different contexts and in a lot of different cultures and the tools are the same no matter what. You just have to kind of use them in a different way depending on who you're working with. But it's, you know, it's just always about helping folks understand that there's a future. All this work is based in future ideas and then understanding that uh, restoring the harm and working for a greater good, I think, versus just punishing something for wrongdoing. It's especially effective with youth, and that's a lot of the work that I do now. Instead of punishing like, someone who's like 13, 14 for getting in a fight in school, working with them to understand like how they could do this better next time, you know, writing an apology letter that type of thing, because that's much more useful than just telling someone you're bad, the behavior was bad, and you can't do it again. So that's kind of, I hope I I answered that question. I kind of went off (laughs) a little bit of a tangent, but it's it's all about focusing on repairing the harm and not so much as the punishment, and then also repairing the harm in a way that is future focused and can help push people forward instead of just staying in the same place. That's really powerful. And I know I really appreciate you defining your work for us because a lot of times people be like, what does Gabby do? And I'm like, conflict analysis and resolution restorative <laughs> justice. Please don't ask me anymore. I have no idea what <laughs> <I> mean. <laughs> and this is something that I've found really fun about doing this podcast is learning more about people that I know or people that I'm close to actually diving in and learning more about what exactly they're doing. So that's really cool. Yeah, I think it's it's also the really cool thing I think about this particular field is I'm always learning because, you know, everyone has their own set of strengths and skills to bring, especially when you're working in conflict. And it's just helping people understand that, like, these can be applied in a different way to get different outcomes. And I'm always learning new things about people and new tools and skills myself. So... It's, that's another part of this work I really like a lot. Mm-hmm. And Gabby, I know you've mentioned before that your career is a way of life, but we also know that you have good boundaries around your work. So how do you see this integration between the two? Well, I think it really comes from not having good boundaries for a <laughs> while. Um, I think everyone struggles with boundaries. But I think the key to having really good boundaries is understanding your values first and what really matters most to you. I recently moved back to Southern Appalachia from living abroad in Southeast Asia and doing this work. And I kind of took a 180 of my career to do this because for me, my, my values are really reflective on being where I'm from, my home, doing this work when I'm needed here, I think, more than other places. And so I think part of living that integrated lifestyle is being really clear on what matters to you and what your values are. And maybe not picking like 15 values, but like 
two or three that are super reflective of what you are and where all this comes from. Um, and then that really helps create those boundaries because you can, you can kind of check in with yourself and say, okay, how is this particular choice in this lifestyle that I'm creating for myself? Is this a reflection of my values? And if it's not, then that's like a way to say, okay, I need to maybe create some boundaries or some space around this so I can make sure I'm more reflective of what I believe in. And to me, that's that integrative lifestyle is that you are able to, to kind of live out those values. I mean, it's not waking up every morning and being like, I'm going to be this value today. It's just like these small steps, I think, of saying, okay, am I being honest with myself? Am I doing the, the right thing to, to really live transparently to these things that I believe in? And that's where those boundaries come in. And a lot of that comes from, I think, saying no a lot more than saying yes, but not in like hard ways. I feel like our society convinces us we need to be doing and working all the time. But I think it's just checking in with yourself and saying, actually, no, I do need to rest. I do need to do these things. And having this balanced idea of self that's really rooted in whatever the values that makes the most sense to you. So I really think it's interconnected, like values and boundaries, like you can't have one without the other. And so it's just, I think part of that integration is always checking in with yourself about those things. I love that advice. I think it's so important. The part that you mentioned about being okay with saying no, because I feel like we live in such a world of, you know, where, where you're there's so much going on and it's so tempting to be like plugged in all the time with everyone has a cell phone that connects to the entire world. And I, I love that you pointed out that it's, it's so important to just take a step back and focus on those boundaries that you've set for yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I love boundaries and values. And if we're being honest, we're all super big fans of Brene Brown over here. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, so you, Gabby, were actually the person who introduced me to her work um, in the first place. And I have shared it far and wide with friends and clients and people have come back to me and they've said, wow, that was really powerful and it helped them view things from different ways. And so I have you to thank for that and for my own personal growth and development around her work. So Share with us, what is one thing about what you've learned from Brene Brown's work that stands out to you? So I'm going to have to share two. Um, <laughs> sorry. Okay. <laughs> because they kind of go hand in hand. We're going to um, have to get the stage hook. <laughs> yeah. Just Probably talking about Brene because I think you both know I could talk about her all day long. Brene all day. <laughs> exactly. And preach her gospel to anybody that will listen. So the first thing is just going back to that boundaries idea. When I came across Brene's work, it was, you know, like what I just said was, I think one reason I really attached myself to this idea of boundaries is because I didn't have them for a long time. And I was really unhappy with the person I was becoming when I didn't have boundaries because I was realizing like, this person isn't making me uh, feel this way. I'm allowing myself to feel this way and be this type of person based on the lack of boundaries that I have with an individual or a job or whatever that is, whatever the relationship is. And so when I came across 
Brene's work, one of the things that she says is the uncomfortableness of saying no is better than the resentment of saying yes. Mm -hmm. And I think that is such a powerful, powerful statement. It's super simple, but it's just one of those things that just really struck me was like, okay, would I rather be full of resentment by saying yes or full of of whatever it is that makes me not be the person that I really enjoy being my authentic self by saying yes, or would I rather just have this uncomfortable moment of saying no? And then as I've grown with that, it's not been like this hard, no, I'm not doing this. It's learning to be soft and tender, but by saying, you know, like, I'm sorry, I just can't do this because it puts me in a place that like, I don't really like who I am and what I'm doing and I don't like the relationship it makes between us. And, you know, I don't think that I'm perfect at it, but I'm definitely better at it than I used to be. And so I think that is the first really big thing that I came across with her work that kind of revolutionized my ideas and way of being is like, I can't control their people, but I can control the way that I let myself be around other people and choose the way in which we navigate our relationship and kind of say, actually, no, this doesn't work for me. Or yes, this does work for me, but let's talk about it. And then the second thing with her work that I think is so, it's so simple, but I don't think people always understand what she means when she says this until they let it marinate. But she advocates so much about showing up And a lot of it's around that narrative of the Theodore Roosevelt speech of like showing up in the arena and understanding that like you're going to get your butt kicked, like you're going to fail, but that's okay because failure is on one step to the process of doing something else. Like you have to make mistakes, you have to fail, you have to be vulnerable and keep showing up and putting yourself out there. Because if you don't, that you're going to live this life half-lived and you'll be sitting in the cheap seats in the arena. Um, and this is all her metaphor. So, like, don't think that any of this is mine. Um, so, but I think, like, it resonates so well with people when they hear that. It's like, it's it's not being successful in life is not having, I think part of this like busy culture that we were just talking about being successful in life is not about working 80 hours a week and making sure you're eating right and checking all these boxes. It's about all this integrated lifestyle of having boundaries, knowing what your values are, and then going and putting them out in the universe and putting yourself out in the universe and just showing up and knowing that, yeah, you're probably going to get your butt handed to you a couple of times, but it's going to be worth it because the vulnerability and the openness is far better than the alternative. Mm -hmm. And I love the Roosevelt quote that Brene Brown shares Mm -hmm. because it is so powerful and it is thinking about, yeah, who, who is telling me that I can't do this? It's not the people in the arena. The people in the arena are like, yeah, go for it. Try it. You know, who knows what's going to happen, but show up. Yeah. The people who are telling me I can't do it are like sitting on their couches at home watching the arena from their television set. <laughs> you know, like that's not, that's not who I want to listen to. That's not who I want to take advice from. So yeah, I find that very powerful imagery. 
Exactly. And also, I think, and I'll just say this one other thing about her, which I think really connects to this podcast, for those of us who are showing up and being seen, most of the time, the biggest critic is ourself. Mm-hmm. Yes. And <laughs> checking that idea of perfectionism and having it all and all that kind of stuff that those are just tools to keep us from showing up and kind of working on dismantling those within ourselves, because that to me is the most powerful way that you can work towards dismantling and changing systems outwardly as you start within yourself and saying, you know, I'm not going to listen to this inner critic. Like it's there and, you know, you might have a seat at the table, but you don't get to ever drive the bus and I'm going to keep showing up no matter what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that you pointed that out because, you know, as we were chatting before we actually started recording today, that was kind of one of the things that we talked about. Like April and I are, you know, now recording season two and we're getting towards the end of season two. But every time we sit down and, and we're getting ready to record, there's still that butterfly moment in your stomach and you're like, well, okay, hopefully I'm improving and I'm, I'm doing the right things. It's tough to put yourself out there, but you have to get past your your own inner voice that is probably the biggest thing holding you back. And and if you don't keep doing it, you're never going to improve on it. So I'm exactly. so a point you brought up. Mm-hmm. And I think when you talk about Starting within, I mean, maybe this is a really good time to mention a little bit of a teaser. Yeah. <laughs> Gabby and I are, are working on a book together that takes a different perspective on the narrative of women's lived experience. And what we realized throughout the course of our friendship and our work together is that if you're going to do helping work, you have to start within. And that's mm-hmm. the starting point of the book as well. So it's still evolving. Stay tuned. We'll let you know as we progress. But Gabby and I have had a lot of thoughts on this process. We've put a lot of words to paper for this book, and we're really excited to see where it takes us. Yes. Well, I'm excited. I definitely am waiting to hear more, and and I'm excited for you guys to (laughs) let us know as the work progresses, for sure. We definitely will. So Gabby, circling back, one of the things that, that you mentioned earlier today is that you know, you've moved around quite a bit. Can you tell us more about where your career has taken you and what brought you to those places? Sure. So I used to have a very set plan of, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And then this is going to happen. When I was doing my doctorate, I was like, okay, the next step will be working for a university. And at the same time, I was really getting into working with families and children because I just kept coming back to the idea And all the research I had been doing kept bringing me back to this idea that true violence prevention, true conflict transformation work starts at home and starts at the dinner table. That's like how you learn these skills. And so I started finding myself more and more working around children and families and and family violence. And I was really burnt out with the American system at that time because I was just kind of like... I don't know if we're ever going to change. It seems really frustrating. And I got the opportunity to go to Southeast Asia and work in Cambodia primarily, but I worked in Myanmar, uh, Laos, India, a lot of different South Asian countries, all working on issues around children and families. And I got to do policy work, which was really awesome because I could see the stuff changing 
very rapidly and very quickly. And especially in Cambodia, they're doing a lot of work around centralizing services, social services and family services. And so they were really, they're really trying to do it in a really awesome way. They've seen all the different ways the rest of the Western world has done it and kind of said, okay, this is how we're going to do it. So it was really cool to be a part of that and see that. And then also while I was there, I got to develop the first ever curriculum for a PhD in conflict transformation out of Panasastra University, which is in Cambodia, in partnership with the Center for Peace and Conflict Studies that does peace studies and conflict work all over Southeast Asia, but they do it primarily with ethnic armed groups, non-government bodies through the peace process. Like um, in Myanmar, we did a lot of work there with ethnic armed groups as they were integrating into the peace process. So it was a lot of quote-unquote homegrown work. And we got to build this awesome PhD program that we specifically targeted folks who had been doing peace work for a really long time. So all the students are like CEOs or high up in their government who really buy into this conflict transformation idea and this work and want to take it back into the own, their own work that they're doing, but at a much higher level. And it was such a really awesome process to be involved in that and kind of say, okay, now we kind of have a way to take what's good with that, but leave some of that behind and really focus on helping these students find what makes the most sense to them in terms of those values and integrating the lifestyle while they go through this PhD process. And then after that, um, sorry, this is a long story. <laughs> uh, after that, I came home to visit. I'm from Western North Carolina. As April said, a very small town in the mountains. I came home to visit. I hadn't been home in a while and I could not believe how the substance use problem has affected this area. I was in shock. It's always been a poverty-stricken area. Southern Appalachia has been, but a really resilient area. And I had just never seen my home hit this hard with such little resources to combat what was going on. And so I couldn't, like I was saying, is going back to those values and finding like what works for me. I could no longer justify doing this conflict transformation work on the other side of the world when my own home, my own culture, the place that I really think has given me some of my best talents and my best qualities, I couldn't sit back and say, they'll figure it out. I made the decision to come home and work here. And it's been a really crazy process because I had to really take a few steps down because conflict transformation work is really hard to find in the U.S. in general. It's really hard to find in rural southern Appalachia. So I was a foster care social worker for about nine months in my home county, which was a crazy experience, but I learned so much about the lack of resources and I was able to understand the system because I decided if I was going to stay here, I'd really have to learn that kind of stuff before I could start making changes. And then I got the opportunity a couple of months ago to shift into the executive director of a nonprofit here that does mediation. And also we do a lot of work with juvenile offenders in the courts and using that restorative justice practice that I was talking about. So 
So in this crazy roundabout way of this life, when I left when I was 18 to go to college, and I thought I would never, ever, ever, ever come back to Western <laughs> North Carolina to live, I did. And I couldn't be happier. There are hard times, but I am constantly amazed by how at peace I feel when I have spent a lot of my life feeling a little restless. And as you two know, as friends of mine, I was always ready for the next thing and to go somewhere else and try something else. And I don't feel that way. I'm shocked that it's in my hometown that I grew up in. So, mm-hmm. and I'm also really happy about it as well. So I feel, I feel like the universe had a much bigger plan for me and I wasn't always on board, but now I'm ready to roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) And I think you have so many places now that you can call home. I mean, Cambodia feels like home in a lot of ways. South Florida feels like home in a lot of ways. And Mm -hmm. rather than seeking and searching for where is home, you created home in a variety of different places and you're aligned with yourself. And so wherever you go, that can feel like home. I always say this, like I've just been really blessed with having really awesome people, no matter where I'm at, come into my life like friends. And so I think like once you live a lot of places, you understand friends and family are your home more than actual places. So... Mm -hmm. I feel, I think you're right, April. Like, I feel like I have homes everywhere, but it's because I have these awesome friends and family living different places that I consider are part of my home. Mm-hmm. And speaking of family, you and I have had the conversation about being single and childless, and you've talked about how you don't want to have children but yet you're passionate about creating this additional narrative for women on this path as being accepted in society. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So I spent a large part of my 20s thinking that I wanted to have kids. And I turned 30 and it was like this idea hit me. It was like, actually, this was just a box you're trying to check. And For me, once I really started thinking about it, I was like, this just doesn't make sense for my lifestyle. And it's actually not something I want to do at all. And it was like a huge burden was lifted off of me of like voicing that, um, saying, well, you know, actually, I don't want to have kids. And I feel like that's something that's really hard for women to do because we have such an emphasis still in our society as being fully feminine, being fully female is still very much wrapped up in our reproduction and having children. And please, please, please let me be clear. This is no knocking people and women who have kids. Like, I love children. I have devoted much of my life working with children and families. I just don't have the desire to have my own. And I think it's beautiful when women do. But I do think there is a lot of pressure from society still in 2019. I mean, as we know, we're still dealing with a lot of things, but that to be a fully actualized woman, you have to have kids. And I just don't buy that. I don't think that is the best narrative. And I don't think that it's, I've heard older women that don't have children saying, oh, I guess I'm just selfish. And for me, it's not being selfish at all to say, actually, this is something I don't want to do. 
so I'm not going to do it. And I just think we don't have enough narratives. Like I'm seeing more and more in books that I read, especially women that are in their 40s, talking about this, that being childless and even being single, as you get past like even the age of 35, is still considered out of the norm, which I think is completely ridiculous, number one. And number two, a woman's value should no longer be aligned with her ability to reproduce or be in a partnership with somebody. I think that as we move forward in society, we really need to be careful with the way in which we're spinning our narratives for the future generation around that, because that's not reflective of your worth. And I'm not saying that if you have kids that you're less than, that's, I I feel like this is what happens when we get into this narrative. It becomes this idea of, of moms versus not moms, but it's, it's a woman should have the ability to choose whatever life and path she wants and her worth should not be tied up into that. And I think that's really the message we need to push forward. Mm-hmm. And not just women, men too, men and women, having the ability to choose whatever path makes the most sense for them. And so I am a really huge advocate for this because I just feel like there's not a lot of that narrative out there still. Um, and just getting folks talking about it, even when it feels a little uncomfortable to acknowledge It's not a selfish choice not to have kids. It's a choice that makes the most sense for you and or to have kids, vice versa, whatever it is. But it shouldn't be reflective of anything else about you other than that's your choice. I love that. I think it's an important topic to keep sharing and and keep the conversation going about because you're right. There is so much pressure, especially if, like you mentioned, you get to like your mid 30s and you're still, you know, trying to figure out what's going on in your career and taking the next step. And what do I really want? And for some people, some people know at a really early age, yes, I want to have kids or no, I don't. And then some people, I I think a lot of people still don't even know when they get to their thirties, like maybe I do, maybe I don't, but I don't know. Do I have to decide today or this week or this year? No, take your time. And, and there's, there's never like a time when you can't, you know, there's always multiple options for everyone. So I'm, I'm really exactly. bringing this up. Exactly. Gabby, as we get ready to wrap up today's episode, one of the questions that we always ask the women joining us, what's your best piece of advice for other women out there looking to take their next step forward? Or maybe it, if it's not advice, maybe it's a book or a resource you'd recommend. I would say that I think the best, I mean, well, first of all, everyone read all of Brene Brown's books um, <laughs> <laughs> and watch her Netflix special. And um, all seriousness, I think, make your own box. I feel like we have a lot of pressure from society in so many different ways to be and exist. And sometimes that's really hard to navigate. So I think some of the best advice I can give is to create your own box. Don't look for society for that and do what is most reflective of your values, like what matters most to you and not to worry so much of like what you've been told that these values matter, but more about what matters most to you. Create the box that feels the most comfortable for you to exist in and live in. It doesn't have to be a box. It can be whatever you want it to be, but also 
make sure that within those things, you have a really good support system because I think one of the things that has made a lot of my life a lot easier than it could have been is I've just had really amazing friends and family. So making sure that you're surrounding yourself with people that are on your side and and regardless of your choices are there to love you unconditionally. That's beautiful advice. And I think that when we have that unconditional love from the people around us, it makes it easier to step into the arena and be ourselves, Mm -hmm. show up, live our values, because we know that we're loved. Exactly. Exactly. Well, with that, we want to say thanks to everyone for joining us today. And thanks so much to you, Gabby, for taking the time to share your story with us. Thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Gabby. It was great speaking with you. As always, we're looking forward to sharing more stories soon. In the meantime, check out our website at herstepforward.com or follow us on Instagram at herstepforward for all the latest updates. If you'd like to reach out to us, shoot us a message on Instagram or email us at info at herstepforward.com. See you next time.